0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Robin Sloan, who is joining us from Oakland today, is interested in the intersection of food, media, and technology. His first novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, was a New York Times bestseller, and his second, Sourdough, published in 2017, is the first and perhaps only book to feature a sourdough starter as a sentient being. We'll be talking about that novel as well as the one he's working on now and the olive oil company he and his partner founded. Welcome to the show, Robin.
3: Hey, thanks. It's great to be here with you.
2: So on top of all these things, you also are a um, programming enthusiast. So can you just describe what each of these interests kind of reveal to you about the other?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, so let's see. We've got books, media, food, technology, um, programming, the Internet. You know, I, it, it's a pretty diverse group, but I, I do think there's at least one thing, probably more than one thing, but at least one that binds them all together for me and that's that i see them all as forms of technology or i guess i should say that the technological part is really important and i think in some cases that's clear i mean when people think of computers and programming they think of technology but when they think of books they don't always think of technology even though i think they ought to you know the book is a form of technology it's super durable and well designed and it has these amazing features actually if you kind of enumerated the the features of a physical book um at the way they do for like the new iphone uh, you'd be pretty impressed um and i think the same is true of food i think it's true of the tools we use in the kitchen um the sort of biotechnological tools we use to make things like sourdough bread um, i think technology is a big important part of all those activities and I guess that's at least part of what attracts me to all of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally not something I'd thought about. I think there's a lot of tension or talk today about comparing using or reading physical bound books versus listening to an audiobook or even reading an ebook. And in that same way, there's also kind of this tension between craft, artisan baking versus, you know, soy or something. And so, can you talk about why that tension may interest you and why you have your feet kind of in two worlds here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very natural um, to be wary, maybe even suspicious of of these new things. I think it's actually appropriate as well. I mean, I think we got to be we got to be cautious about about new systems, and especially when it's things that we're putting into our body. Um, I would say, in general, however, that I flip it around. I think that the old and the traditional, and again, I, I mean, this truly applies across the board to to books. You know, the warm comfort of a printed book, you're curled up in bed with this amazing sort of familiar object. And and also to food, um, you know, the idea of sort of learning to cook at someone's elbow and seeing them use a cast iron pan and swirl something around with a spoon and, you know, throw some salt in there. Those things are all incredibly um, high-tech acts, in fact. And they both, both kind of streams of experience, depend on this incredible... Um, Scaffolding, you could say, of industry and technology and invention and development. Um, this, these, these actually are not natural things at all, at least not natural the way a, a tree is natural or a cloud is natural. So even though I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of as sketched out by Soylent as the next person, I'm always kind of um, agitating to give these familiar seeming things their due as like very strange Uh, high-tech activities.
2: Yeah, so to beat this dead horse further, I guess, um, when I think of cooking at someone's elbow, I don't necessarily think of that as high-tech. So I'm really interested in maybe you can help us redefine or define tech in your words.
3: Yeah, well I mean, I think it has to do with two things, at least. Probably a lot more. But it has to do with tools, and it has to do with history. Um, The the tool part is actually really important. I guess there might be some people out there listening to this who, like, are going to go prepare a meal in a (laughs) in a hollowed-out gourd. <laughs> in that case, maybe their tools are pretty simple. Um, for most of us, many of us, um, our tools are, are actually a lot more sophisticated than that. And it's only because they're familiar that it's easy for us to forget that. But like the, the really the heavy lifting and the high temperatures and the, the resource extraction that has to happen to give me a really beautiful stainless steel knife or a cast iron pan, uh, or any of that stuff. I've got a cutting board made out of like bamboo. Um, I mean, this stuff flows around the world in supply chains, and it goes through factories, and and even though it ends in this very um kind of warm, familiar, comfortable place, the the other stops along the way are anything but. So that's tools, and we have to kind of give our tools their due. The other thing is history, and I think anybody who's even halfway curious about the food they eat has encountered this at some point. You know. Uh, There's a million examples like this, but I think, again, a lot of people know that, like, the tomato, uh, you know, classic ingredient in Italian cuisine has not been in Europe or Italy for that long. this was brought over from the New World. This is kind of a fruit of that era of exploration and colonization. Um, And I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't that long ago. This is we, we, we like know when these things arrived. Um, and they were strange and brand new at that time. Of course, in the centuries since, they have become very sort of familiar and essential. But I don't know, for me, it's just always really important, important to remember that there was a moment when it was deeply strange. And who knows, maybe people were having conversations about tomatoes then the way that we have conversations about soylent or like synthetic meat now.
2: Totally. I was actually just going to ask you what you think the modern day tomato is and um, how it may get assimilated or not do you think it's soylent wait say that again i was going to ask you what you think i guess kind of just in a fun way um what our modern day tomato is what's the kind of controversial addition to our cuisine and if it may stick around boy that's a really good
3: question you know i'm not sure that i have a great answer um because i do think that this new era of like truly synthetic stuff is quite different from i don't know the last many, many, many thousands of years of humans both finding things in nature and then in kind of a natural, organic way, developing them. You know, there's there is a difference, I think, between, um, say, making a new hardy hybrid of wheat and literally going in and tinkering with the genome of wheat. So I do You know, as far as for much as I say that, like, you know, uh, our, our food that we are eating now is is high tech and you know, like has this long history. I do think the food that we're that's brand new today, and, and certainly the food we're going to be eating in the next couple hundred years, I think it's different. Um, and I don't know. I, I The truth is, I don't know how that's going to shake out. I think it's really complicated, and I'm glad there are so many people out there thinking so hard about it, because I think it deserves hard thinking Mm
2: -hmm. yeah so let's take a few steps back um you were saying that the common thing that threads all your interests is this interest in technology um but let's talk about how you became a writer um how you became enthusiast level programmer. someone doesn't just pick that up Um, can you just talk about your your path here
3: yeah of course um you know, sometimes these stories are simple, and uh, and I think mine is, in a way. It really starts with the public library. Uh, I grew up in Troy, Michigan, you know, one of the many sort of interchangeable suburbs around Detroit, and uh, Troy had and has today a great public library, and I went there a lot. Um, you know, my parents would drop me off for kind of the whole day, in some cases. And uh, I still remember the, the way the automatic doors would swish open there and they had this great, super powerful air conditioning inside, which was so often like a total oasis. And of course it smelled great. It smelled like books and a little bit like carpet, I guess. And that's where it all starts. You know, that's where I started reading a lot. Um, that's where I graduated from the kids section to the teen section to my first kind of explorations of the adult section. That's where I checked out a whole bunch of books about computers and of course science fiction books, which were sort of about computers in a roundabout way. And uh, if not for that place, you know, if not for those days, I I would be a different person and I would be interested in different things. So yeah it it all all my all my interests really were sort of founded there and they began with the things that I found on the shelves
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I think today there's this kind of common fascination and obsession with storytelling um, whether it's brands trying to rethink the storytelling or even just a common user thinking like this Um, story belongs on stories Instagram stories or a feed or an email or a text Um, and so how do you think about storytelling when you're thinking about programming versus writing just a fictional novel Well, that's
3: a good question i that's first of all it's a good observation um there is this sort of obsession i think obsession is the right word with storytelling um i i have to confess that i think it's a little not misplaced but but shallow i guess you could say i think it focuses on a particular kind of storytelling um and a, a certain concept of story uh and I guess for my part, (laughs) I don't know. To me, the core of a story has nothing to do with character development, has nothing to do with plot even. It simply is driven by this urgent question. Um, It couldn't be simpler. The question is, what happens next? That's what propels you from page to page in any kind of book. The book can be about anything. It can be written in any way. It can be very conventional and mainstream. It can be totally weird and experimental and it can still work as long as it keeps that question alive in your mind. What happens next? I mean, I think that's what keeps people listening to a podcast. Uh, they they want to know what happens next. You know, what's going to come next in this conversation? And so in a way, that's, that's very simple, maybe even simplistic. Um, but I think it's often people like sort of shoot right past it and they go into this world of like, well... We need to think about the arc of this of this the development of these characters and, and like what's gonna happen and what's the twisty plot reveal gonna be. But man, I don't think it matters. I mean all those things can work, they can sort of raise that question what happens next. But sometimes for me, that connects back to learning things. You know, if I'm interested in say a new programming language or I wanna learn some some new tool on the computer, or if I wanna learn how to cook something. I think that question is somewhere at the heart of it. You know, you want to know what happens next? What happens now?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe walk me through a recent kind of creative pursuit. Um, For me, I primarily cook or write. And so when I have an idea, I'll think about a certain food that inspires a certain dish. And then that's how I, you know, I have a pretty logical A to B, B to C, C to D. But for you, I feel like it varies so widely depending on the media or the platform. And so can you walk me through how you might approach something?
3: Well, I mean, here I'll reveal a little part of my process, and I think it's it's not completely unconventional in the world of writers, but it's maybe not the the most sort of normal approach either. Um, for me, so it, it, everything starts from from being curious and just kind of looking at the world around you, and and you, it's almost like uh, like magpies, you know, or those those other birds that kind of like collect shiny objects. I feel like I have been like that for a long time, maybe my whole life. And so as I just operate in the world, as I read things and listen to things and, and just encounter things out there kind of on the sidewalk, I, I'm very diligent about collecting them. I take notes, I record little snippets of audio. I just, I do that kind of thing all day. So often, not always, but often the way a project starts for me is that I've got a little bundle of those things and I didn't intend for them to fit together. I had no idea that they would, but for some reason, it seems like they do. And so I say, well, maybe there's something there. Um, and truly, this is where my newest novel, I mean, it's fair to say all my novels came out of this process uh, and it's and true to form, it's where my newest novel started as well. I think people looking at my starting point would be a little bit horrified because it <laughs> looks like a pile of garbage. <laughs> but you know, there's there's whole artists that have, that have distinguished careers made of building sculptures out of trash. And so I think, I think that's kind of where I get started too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my internet stalking of you, I also saw that you created this kind of machine learning app that, that writes for you. Can you explain how that works and um, if you've used this in your same process or not?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I would say my interest in machine learning and artificial intelligence comes from a very similar place. Um, you know, of course, it's something that lots of people are talking about and reading about the amazing, really, really impressive capabilities of these new machine learning systems. You know, often they're doing things that are very useful, like they're translating between languages automatically or they're driving cars around, you know, almost autonomously and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, it turns out you can also use them to generate text um, and it can they can generate text based on examples. Um, and so, of course, I think the, the kind of appeal there for a writer is immediately apparent. Um, the idea is you could give one of these machine learning systems a whole bunch of books to read. It could be it could be all the Harry Potter books, or it could be every Charles Dickens book, or it could be all the Harry Potter books and Charles Dickens and all the novels by Robin Sloan. And you could essentially say, all right, take a, take a few days, learn how these work, learn the patterns, learn the flavor, and now... Write something new for me, and what comes out is not like a perfect finished novel at all. So there's no there's no threat to, to human writers yet, but it is really interesting, um, and it does have that same sense, to your point, of having sort of mixed and munged things up and having sort of uh, metabolized them, I guess. Um, and for me, it's really interesting. It's almost like poetry. And, uh, and I, I'm using the output of some of these, uh, some of these systems in my, in my new work.
2: Hmm. Have you given it to other people to, uh, to use?
3: Yeah, yeah, I have. It's, I would say there is a, a, a small but um, vibrant sub-sub-sub-sub-community of writers who are also nerds who probably also have some interest in programming, who have started to play with these tools. And we, uh, we all swap notes and, and show each other what we're doing.
2: Okay. Um, we'll be back after a short break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s, and continues today with non-stop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards, and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marble Cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com.
1: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists. To identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
2: So before we went to break, we were talking about Robin Sloan's creative process, where how he's kind of going out into the world and finding these shiny, but maybe seemingly disparate bits, which then somehow yield his awesome novels and creative programming pursuits. And so can you talk a bit about um, the shiny bits that you assembled for the sourdough novel?
3: Oh, yeah, of course. Um... It started um, with a sense I had. Well, of course, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And if you live here for any amount of time and have any intersection with the food community, you quickly come to realize um, that it is weird and interesting and sort of almost science fictional in a way that I thought maybe others didn't fully appreciate Um, to me. In particular, I would say now this this might be new in the last five years or ten years, the way that the tech community, sort of the world of Silicon Valley, has collided with the world of Bay Area food is really interesting, and it just seemed to me really, um, I don't know, uh, fertile, fertile ground, like there was, or maybe I should say it was kind of fermenting, and I could see the (laughs) bubbles, and I knew something was happening underneath the surface. Uh, So I knew I wanted to write a story, and this one really started with a feeling. I wanted, and this connects back to our conversation earlier, I wanted something that kind of made a traditional food way, something that, you know, on the surface seems uh, familiar and comfortable and com- comforting, I wanted to make it seem strange and maybe even a little bit sinister.
2: Mm-hmm. So can you actually just give, because our listeners have not had the... Um, oh yeah, of
3: course. Of <laughs> course. Yeah. So so Sourdough is a novel about a, and this is, you know, this as as I said, tech and food collide. Um, it's a novel about a young programmer at a tech company in Silicon Valley. Um, Her name is Lois Clary. She moved out to San Francisco from the Midwest. She started this programming job and um, it's not working out for her. It's just too intense. She doesn't like the people she works with. She doesn't like the work. Um, And so she doesn't know what she's going to do with herself. It was kind of this dream that seems to be crumbling or combusting before her eyes. At the same time, um, she gets her hands on a sourdough starter. Um, It comes to her through mysterious channels and, um, she has never baked sourdough bread before. She's in fact, never baked anything before. She's in fact, hardly cooked a thing in her life. Um, but in part because she's so strung out at work and just looking for something else to pour herself into, she decides that she's going to give sourdough a try. So, uh, maybe needless to say, uh, this sourdough starter is stranger than it at first appears. Um, it has some somewhat mysterious powers and characteristics that quickly become apparent. And it essentially pulls Lois into the weird world of Bay Area food. And the novel goes from there. Um, she meets strange characters, and the starter gets stranger and stranger, and, um, and weird things happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah, you were talking about this collision of Bay Area food and tech. Um, so all I was familiar with was with Sourdough. Can you give some examples of other instances you see this happening?
3: Yeah, you know, I to me, uh, if I had to kind of sum it up, um, or in, in kind of one feeling, it's this what I think of as sort of the utopian urge in Silicon Valley, and like a lot of things here, it's I think both good and bad, or both um, I don't know, healthy and sometimes destructive. Uh, you see it in companies like Google and Facebook, Apple, Tesla who combine, you know, they're obviously big companies and they're out there doing kind of big things. Um, and at the core, whether it's, whether it's, you know, a sincerely held thought or maybe just a good PR spin, it's often hard to say. Um, but they really talk about work that's going to change the world and maybe even save the world. I mean, these are people who, who really, I think in many cases, earnestly believe that, um, work can be a, a force for, um, for incredible positive change in the world. So there's that, and that has been part of the Silicon Valley story for a long, long time. It actually has its roots um, in like the Summer of Love and the hippie movement and sort of the intersection, the collision many decades ago of that sort of uh, Aquarian thinking um, with, uh, you know, Silicon and, uh, and screens and the internet and all that stuff. So it's been there all along, and now suddenly it connects with food. And I think the way that a utopian thinker can apply, especially one who has incredible skills and access to money and people and talent and you know everything else, uh, they can apply those um, feelings uh, to food very clearly, I think, because the food system in this country and this world has so many problems and like the problems aren't hidden or secret. A lot of people know about them. So, um, at least from my perspective, and I could be wrong, this is just my personal opinion, I think that's really at the heart of this collision. I think it's a bunch of uh, very bright, um, very energetic utopian thinkers who have come around and seen this field, this new sort of field for action. And I think they imagine improvement. And so they are unleashing all of their talents and all of their money, their capital um, on this new problem. And of course, the problem is what do we eat? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover between kind of sourdough language. Um, I'm thinking a lot about optimization from batch to batch and tech. So, can you talk about that collision as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, there, well, I mean, you put your finger on something interesting, um, which is, and it's this is even more zoomed in from this general kind of tech and food thing. Um, there is. <laughs> some interesting resonance, it seems, between um, the mind that enjoys computer programming and enjoys the very analytical processes that are required for like being successful in Silicon Valley and a mind that um, appreciates sourdough baking. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of theories for why that's the case, uh, you know, as you say, and it, it does sour good sourdough baking does involve a lot of iteration, a lot of record keeping, of course, incredible attention to detail. Um, I don't know if that fully explains it. Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's been happening for a while. It's definitely been sort of a meme around here. Like, oh, another Google programmer who's suddenly really into sourdough. Um, I guess I would like to think that my novel had a little, little something to do with it. Um, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, it seems like, um, as you describe it, tech culture is kind of, whether maliciously or not, shaping the food and the cuisine of the Bay Area. And do you think this our future of food will kind of be this fusing of the two, of tech and food, or is it, um, again, the abandonment of tech and kind of return to craft and rustic and artisan baking?
3: Boy, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, I guess for my part, I, I think that um, some, of these, some of these minds do have things to offer. I, I mean, of course, I, I think food and the way we produce food has always been changing and improving, and and it's been engineered many times before. Um, So I I think there's still space for improvement and more engineering, so I think that's a good thing. At the same time, and probably more so, um, I'm really rooting for that craft production model. Um, and for me, it's, it's not really a question of techniques. Like it's, it's not like I think, um, technology, obviously technology is bad and like doing things the old fashioned way is good. I don't think that I think, I think, you know, smart, thoughtful people will always kind of just choose the right tools and the right processes, um, to make something good and, and healthy. Uh, what I really care about is centralization versus decentralization. I think one of the really big problems with food in general, um, certainly in the United States over the last, you know, 50 years, 60 years, has been this incredible centralization of production of almost everything. Um, And I think it's a bummer. I think it's a bummer economically. I think it's a bummer creatively. You know, it's it's fun to do these things and, and, and learn how to do them and get to share them with people in your community and, you know, then conversely it's it's kind of a shame to not have the opportunity because all the all the flowers being milled like in one place 2,000 miles away so um, you know we have craft breweries in more towns than we ever did before now there's like a resurgence in that field and and you're seeing that sort of approach uh, pop up other places as well so I don't know if I would, bet on that is the future of food but why I'm really really rooting for it
2: mm-hmm. yeah to that note there's this kind of significant moment in the book where um the brothers that Lois gets to meet and befriend kind of they give her their culture um which you know you can wax poetic on that all you want um but can you talk about what that why you wrote that in and and kind of what that means or what you hope it means for their future
3: yeah I mean well First of all, talk about sort of seeing something glittery in the world and grabbing it for your own nefarious purposes. As I, of course, before I ever even sat down to write this novel, I had been baking sourdough bread myself, not ever very well, but I I did try it. And um, when you get into the sourdough world, uh, anyone can attest, one of the first things you hear is all these amazing sourdough starter origin stories. You know, they've all got these stories like, oh, this actually, you know, was used by a miner up in the Yukon 100 years ago. Or like, oh, no, my grandma actually brought this over to the United States from the old world. Or, you know, actually, this this starter belonged to a murdered man <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> Um, It's fun. It's fun to have these stories to attach to these things. Um, And so often, at least in my experience, maybe this is just the the stories that I paid most attention to. They would be kind of adventurous or mysterious, Um, almost like a little little spy thrillers wrapped up in these little, uh, you know, glass jars of kind of gray scum. Um, so I love that I love that idea and I love the idea that a starter can have an adventure it can you know once you give it to someone else uh, and of course you don't have to give it away you can kind of clone it and, and it keeps growing it can go off and then like who knows who else it might be and where in the world it'll end up and I just think that's it's awesome. It's amazing. It's an adventure. So I wanted, I knew as soon as, as soon as I encountered that idea in the real world, I knew I wanted to put it in a story.
2: Yeah. In a way, the book, um, kind of served to grow and multiply, um, in this sourdough inspired menu that you got to experience at Flora. Can you talk about that experience?
3: Oh yeah. Boy, talk about things coming full circle. Um, of course, so books can get adapted into, all sorts of things. People can make them into movies or TV shows or stage plays or, you know, audiobooks, of course. Um, I think one of the less common adaptations is uh, a dinner, a complete dinner menu. Um, But that's what they did um, at this really... Beloved Oakland restaurant, it's a total institution called Flora in Uptown Oakland. Um, They actually have a newly created book club, and for that book club, um, for its meetings, uh, the chef there, Rebecca Boyce, comes up with an entire themed menu, and it's all connected back to the book. It's amazingly creative. She kind of draws out different themes and and ideas, and of course, in some cases, actual dishes that are that are in the pages of the novel, and then she puts it on the table for everyone. So. I got to go to that dinner at Flora and it was amazing. It was astonishing. I mean, both both because the food was delicious. I mean, there was, of course, there was sourdough bread, but there were other things too. There were just all sorts of amazing creations. Some of them were almost like winks at things in the book or sort of like reflections of things in the book. Um, but then also just to know that this creative mind, you know, this super world-class chef, Rebecca, had thought about the book for that long. She'd read it. And she sat and thought about it, and then made something creative of her own. It was like incredible. Was, I, was I recommend there, it to all authors.
2: Was there any part of the menu that felt kind of discordant or um, kind of surprised you? And you, you yourself did. Surprised find me.
3: It? Well, yeah. So it's it, the the, it, the the last course surprised me. It did not feel discordant. I, it's just that I didn't understand it at first. Um, but then once it was explained, I was like, oh, of course. It was um, dessert, and it was a pavlova. Um, this amazing sort of sweet, puffy pastry. I, I don't know if I'd ever actually had a pavlova before that. And so I was like, what is this pavlova? There is no pavlova featured in this novel. And Rebecca explained um, that it was in some ways a recreation of this. Um, we'll talk about food and tech. It was a recreation of this like superfood um, that a young food entrepreneur is creating in the world of sourdough. She calls it limbus, and it's supposed to be this like perfectly nutritious, um, cheap, easy to get food that's just going to be like your fuel um, to, to consume every day and keep going. And it's going to be so cheap that everybody can have it all the time. And it's described in a particular way as this sort of kind of spongy, kind of crispy, like not totally appetizing little, little puff balloon. uh, And nobody in the novel really likes it. So Rebecca, she was taken by that description. But of course, she wanted to make something that people actually liked. um, So she made these wonderful lembas pavlovas. And they were all wild and spiky. And it was awesome.
2: (laughs) That's insane. Um, So in our last few minutes, let's talk about Fat Gold, the olive oil company that you and Catherine have started. So can you talk about what kind of problems you were trying to solve um, when coming up with this?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is a tiny micro scale craft olive oil producer. We make California extra virgin olive oil. And, you know, this really grew out of um, Catherine's work in olive oil. She's been a miller and working with olive oil companies here in California for years before we started Fat Gold. But then she got the opportunity um, to take over a very, very small three acre olive grove. And, you know, I mean, part of it, of course, is that is that we're together and we we work on things together. But then I think also that I had been doing all this work on the book and just been much more immersed in the world of food than I ever had been before. Um, It's sort of, the stars sort of aligned um, for me to join her in that. And so just about three years ago, um, we started a lease on this olive grove. It has 327 olive trees, which is simultaneously sort of like not very many and totally too many (laughs) for two people. Um, And we farm it and we prune the trees and we um, just manage the whole process out there. And then we also um, manage the milling process and produce um, this really, really great olive oil. And it's not a lot of it. You know, it's we it's again, it's a micro skill craft producer. um, So this is not something that's going to be on like every grocery store shelf ever. Uh, But um, we sell some of it online. We sell it to some small boutique stores. And I don't know, for us, it's just been a way to learn for, let, let me break that down. For Catherine, it's been a way to learn a different part of the olive oil making process. For me, um, frankly, it's been a way to get away from the screen and to work on something out in the real world instead of uh, just something in my head.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how has that Gold kind of influenced your creative process?
3: Oh, I mean, completely. And, and you know, again, this actually in a way connects absolutely full circle to where we started. Because I've learned all the things about the process of running a little food business like this that aren't just the food. You know, of course, we we do have to like focus on the olive and what's happening in the olive and, and what's how we're going to get the oil out. But there's all this other stuff. You know, there's like logistics and packaging and and the mill and renting trucks, refrigerated trucks, and driving them around California, and finding subscribers and you know keeping track of all the mailing and just all that like that technology really, or that, that scaffolding, um, that's required. I mean, like you can make something that's really wonderful. And, you know, I think the oil we make is, is really, really, really remarkable. But if you just make it like it doesn't go anywhere. And Mm -hmm. so I will, I will confess that I was not prepared for all that other stuff. Um, and it's been really interesting. It's been, um, it's been revelatory just to see how much is required to, to make a product, kind of travel through the world. And for me, it's actually been pretty fun to do.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Oh, a real pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
2: And when can we look out for your new book?
3: I'm working on the manuscript now, so we'll see. Maybe a year, year and a half, if we're lucky. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place